Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Dublin, Ireland. In this episode, we caught up with Jerry McGovern, one of the most well-known and loved customer experience advocates. Jerry has developed a number of fantastic models over the years, such as Top Tasks, and also curates and creates one of the best weekly experience design newsletters on the internet. I'll add links to the show notes for both of those. Jerry's been described by the Irish Times as one of the five visionaries who has had a major impact on the development of the web. He's a fantastic speaker and by the time this episode gets released, we'll have completed three of the four dates as closing keynote speaker on Jeffrey Zellman's and Event Apart conferences in the US. Jerry has written six books, one of which came across my desk a number of years ago by Jerry Gaffney in Melbourne. The three Jerrys, all Irish and all doing something pretty similar. So uh, going back to this episode, we discuss trust and we cover off what is trust to Jerry, the role of trust in society and in relation to the exchanges between customers and organisations. We speak about how customers have evolved at an exponential rate that exceeds that of organisations, and now organisations are playing catch-up. This is a big conversation and is jammed packed with information. It was quite bizarre that we actually caught up only a few miles from where I grew up in a hotel lobby, so if you hear the jingle jangle of glasses or the distant sound of Van Halen music in the background, that should explain it. So anyway, let's jump straight in. Jerry McGovern, a very warm welcome to the This Is Eight City podcast. Thanks very much, Jerry. Yeah. So today we're um, we're going to talk a little bit about you, which is great because you're here. But how would you describe yourself in terms of uh, being a practitioner? Yeah, I suppose what somebody uh, described me there recently is almost a, an extreme champion of the customer. <laughs> yeah, that's better. I had a customer-centric guru, but yeah. uh, an extreme champion is probably... Yeah. A, a and I'm not so sure if they were being positive or negative <laughs> when they said it. <laughs> they were introducing me to a bunch of other managers in, in the building. And so, you know... For anyone who, who doesn't or hasn't signed up for, for Jerry's newsletter, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to sign up. It's one of the best resources for customer centricity on the internet. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting opposite me, but I've been a long time reader. Jerry, when I was researching for this episode, I was really intrigued by your background. I know you've worked as a rock journalist for Hot Press, um, which really spiked my interest. And you've been involved in the early stages of the web. And I know the Irish Times voted you one of the top five influencers for the web. Um, and we could speak a little bit more about your business with Nua, which is another yeah. interesting thing. I told you, I've done my research. Mm. All amazing experiences, I'm sure, but I'm keen to involve how you got to where you are today. I was a freelance journalist back in, in the early 90s. So in other words, I was starving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and I was kind of looking for something to really focus on or kind of mm. to... I remember as a child, I used to sneak down at night and watch the westerns and I'd see the wagons going out west. And I, I was so envious because I thought, I'll never get a chance to go out west. There is yeah. no west left. When, you when you're from Longford. Yeah, in Longford anyway, certainly. Yeah, maybe the west of Ireland. But I kind of made myself a promise. I said, if you ever see those wagons going out west, yeah. you got to get on them. And the first time I came across the web, it was definitely the NCSA Mosaic because I remember uh, soon after, a couple of people I knew, there was a big conversation about the Netscape yeah. was released. So it was, it was very early. And, and the first time I saw it, I thought, this is amazing. You know, yeah. I thought, this is the wagons going out west, you know. Mm. And I thought, this is something that you can really do something with and be part of. And so I, I'd found, in a way, a purpose to be useful. Yeah, <laughs> an empowerment. You know, and so one way or another, from about 93, 94, I remember I'd interviewed a a government minister, or was that director, somebody working in a in a department. He was called a national software director at that stage. He's yeah. no longer around. And I wrote back to him. So I had his, had his address or his phone number. And I wrote to him or rang him. And I said, you should really do something about this thing called uh, the internet. Yeah. And uh, he actually got back to me and says, well, why don't you do a report? So that was... That was the start. That was the start. That was about 94 or so. And that report was launched in the beginning of 96. It was called Ireland, the Digital Age, the Internet. And so that allowed me to do loads of research and really get to talk to people. And, and from that, we founded new. There was three of us, Niall O'Sullivan and Anton O'Loughnan were the other two. And that's how it kind of got going. Yeah. One of the early adopters of the internet, really, in Ireland. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember myself and Niall taking two phone directories or, or the yellow pages or the golden pages or whatever it was. And I said to him, you know, you take ATM and I'll take N to, N to a Z. And we rang every business we could find. And, and 97% had never even heard of anything. And, and, and the other 2 or 3% had absolutely no interest. So we yeah. rang, I think, every business in Ireland and, and we didn't get a single piece of business out of it. So it was hard days in 95, 96, 97 to try and get anything going in, in Dublin. And you've, I guess you've kind of followed that thread of like zero adoption through to like where we're currently at globally. I know you work globally with organizations who've got mild appetites for the internet and you're kind of seeing that through at the moment. You're working with those clients. All sorts of, you know, it's, it's like you go to certain countries and you think they're super advanced, but you'll find sectors or elements mm. that are not advanced at all. So it's, it's all the future, the past, the present is everywhere at the same time. And then you get to certain areas where, in a way, you almost make yourself redundant in that organisations totally get it or they're bringing teams in-house. So things are constantly changing or shifting in relation to how do you still deliver value and offer something that people still want to pay for. Absolutely. Which brings us into the next segue in the conversation, which is the book which I read um, a couple of years ago, probably two years ago, was it when Transform came out? And I've actually bought this book a couple of times. I was speaking to you before we started Thank recording. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, it's called Transform, A Rebel's Guide to Digital Transformation. Now, my question for you is, why digital and not just transformation? Yeah, and why even transformation yeah. and not continuous improvement? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I suppose we're always somehow trying to get a handle on some sort of way to try and describe things. Yeah. And as soon as you describe things, in a way it's redundant. You know, and I suppose maybe it's a basic attempt to say we need to change because the world is changing. Like I say in the book, customers are changing, organizations are not. Or if you go back 40 or 50 years ago, organizations were were the genuine innovators and they were doing things that customers were going, wow, that's amazing. But now if you look at a typical person, they've got better tools than most employees in most companies. Mm. They've got access to, you know, if they want to set up a Slack account or if they want to set up a high-rise account or if they want to, you know, talk to their family with uh, Skype Skype or whatever. So they've got tools of communication and organisation that are often significantly better than the in-house crap tools that most people have. So you've got this anomaly, whereas if you look back five or six centuries, what was the purpose of an organisation to be more sophisticated than the mob, you know, of people out in the street. But now the people out in the street are often more coherently structured and more able to rapidly adapt to change than the big organisations. So organisations are in this strange moment of when most of them are actually way behind the times and the customer's racing ahead. So it's a kind of saying that, you know, it's the rebel's guide. How do you change this organisation most of which don't want to change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, there's two points in there. One, you speak a little bit about the rebel. And um, what I'm keen to drill into a little bit more is like, who is the rebel typically in the organization? And uh, what, what kind of problems are they currently having that you found? Well, the rebel is the person who's saying, we got to organize around the customer. We've got to make this simpler. We've got to make this easier. Because if we don't make it simpler and easier, people won't buy it. People won't use it. And that's a rebellious act. And that a huge number of people over the years, I've noticed, who have done that, get in trouble in their organisation mm. because they're going back to the developers or the managers saying, no, no, it's not ready to release. It's not, or maybe it's released, but it's not right. We still need to make it better, etc. No, we need to rewrite that. No, that design is not simpler enough. No, that's not working. You need to change that process. And essentially the organisation is saying, hello, yeah. You know, stop, you know, this is costing more, this is annoying, you're really annoying. Yeah, and they, <laughs> you know, it, the good people tend to leave at that, that uh, point. Well they, well, they either get fired. Yeah. or they, I mean, I've seen so many environments where the people who are saving the bloody organisation get fired or else they hit a ceiling and they end up leaving through frustration or whatever. So you get no thanks for a lot of this work because... The organisation wants to believe the easy myths of, 
you know, it's still powerful. It still can do whatever it wants. You know, it can create crap products and then do beautiful marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And with the bit that we're talking about, the, the UXers and the service designers creating value, there's a bit in your book where you speak about how the customer is transformed and the customer is, not, is different and they've become more empowered through the development of the internet and they've got knowledge and they've got information yeah. at their fingertips. But organizations are still lagging behind. So one of the methodologies that you've created is called Top Task, which has been around for... Tell me, 15 years. 15 years. Yeah. I was going to say seven or eight years. Yeah. But like, tell us a little bit more about Top Tasks and how that helps organizations close the gap between the existing customer sort of baseline and where yeah. organizations are at. Most organizations have become so tribal, so interlocking mm. that they don't really know their customers. Or, you know, we were talking there earlier, we saying, oh, we can't talk to our customers. We've got relationship managers. They're not even allowed to talk to their customers. Yeah. And so less and less people within the organization have any interaction with their customers. So they build up these myths of uh, assumptions. assumptions or sometimes I know it can be good, but a lot of times it's uh, find it's bad personas. They invent mm. the fictional customers that they think, etc. So the top task method is, is specifically designed for you to actually discover what really your customers want, what they need, but equally what they don't need, yeah. what they don't want. So it's a kind of to give you a map or a lead table of importance. Here's the critical stuff that they really want and here's the stuff that they don't want. So the top tasks and what I call the tiny tasks. And then what we often do is we do a similar, so we develop the task environment. Here's all the stuff in choosing the university and dealing with your health and buying a car, whether it's for Toyota or whatever. And then we give the same set of tasks to the organization staff and we say well vote on these as well and see what you think your customers want nice. and then we can statistically analyze the two votes and yeah. say listen there's a huge gap between what you think your customers want and what customers actually want so that it's a basic statistical method of creating a league table of customer hierarchy of importance yeah. customer needs tasks whatever you want to call them services ta- the stuff people want to do yeah so it's kind of like the voice of the business voice of the customer and you're trying to see the dissonance between the, the two the dissonance between the, and the clarity of here's let's say in, a, in an environment there might be a hundred tasks that would define dealing with your health so prognosis diagnosis mm. where to go for health stuff you need to do so let's say if there was a hundred tasks this is a pattern that we've seen happen in four or five hundred organizations, three, four hundred thousand people voting in 28, 30 languages, etc. The top five tasks will get as much of the vote as the bottom 50. So you get this absolute clarity clarity of yeah. here's the stuff that truly matters and here's the stuff that doesn't matter. And in essence, the top task is a management model which says, well, if these are the top five services, this is the stuff you need to excel at. Yeah. If you don't get these five services right, you're on rocky foundations. Whereas what most organizations are doing, they're actually focusing on what's at the bottom of the yeah. list. You know, the long tail. So the to long speak. tail. Yeah. And the long tail is a good idea when the top tasks are working. Yeah. But if the top tasks are crap, like if you're trying to make book a meeting room work really well for a hotel, when book a bedroom sucks. Yeah, you know you're not going to get very far. Yeah, so you got to make sure first and foremost, book a bedroom works exceptionally well. Then focus on book a meeting room. But most organisations I'm dealing with, they're focusing on book a meeting room, and others say, "Oh, there is a book a bedroom." Uh, Yeah, we haven't touched it in five years. Well. Recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And I know we're, we're speaking a little bit about the disconnect between the organization and the customer. And that's led to the breakdown in trust, which is really what this episode is about. It's about the collapsing of trust yeah. in the customers globally. What I'm keen to hear is like the top task methodology yeah. is one way of, of surfacing that to the senior executives and the board. But what can designers do typically to help bring that conversation up? Yeah, of course it's the challenge that I'm sure you face that none of us live in an isolated world. So if you're exploiting your customer, particularly your current customers, with overcharging. So most most models in financial or whatever, the longer you stay with the organisation, the more they charge you. So how do you create a great customer experience when you're screwing your customers? Yeah. You know, so... We hit these barriers that you can't design around. So as we find 
if we truly want to solve these problems. They're whole of organization mm. behaviors, which then we say, well, we can't do that. So how do we work within a limited environment so we do the best we can? But if you're deliberately trying to make pricing opaque, yeah, you know, because if you made it transparent, people would then say, well, you're charging me twice as much as you're charging a new customer. Mm. So in many organizations, unfortunately, they want pricing to be opaque because if they made it transparent and clear, if they simplified the actual renewal process, people would see they're getting screwed. So customers are much more aware of that now because they can go to comparative websites. You go back 20 or 30 years ago, you renew your car insurance or whatever. And of course, it's all designed that way. You know, the, you get out and it looks like, oh, I'm getting a 60% note limbs bonus and it looks brilliant. Oh, they're treating me really well. And I, I was with one, Karen, sure, either Axe or whatever. I was with them for 10 years and I was so busy. I was traveling, etc. And then when I finally checked, they were charging me twice as much as I could get elsewhere from me. But I felt I was getting a great deal because they had designed it. They says, oh, you're stupid. You're not going to check. So we're going to screw you. So how do you design around that? And I think... It's very difficult to do that. So I think then you got Slack, an organization at Slack that says, oh, you got 50 people who have signed up for the payment model and five of them are not using the service. We're sending you a discount. Nice. You know, then the SAS company's gone, you can't do that. That's how we make our profit by the people who don't use the system. Yeah. You know, because their business model is unscrewing you. Yeah. Whereas... It's a kind of saying that in the world of where the customer is not so much king, they're dictator, they've got much more information, actually being fair, mm. being simple, delivering good service is a good business model. Yeah. You know, you can actually be successful. Amazon, it may be a lot of black spots in, in the way it treats a lot of its people, stuff, yeah. but it treats customers fairly. Mm. Ethically. It, ethically. It, it actually treats customers. You know, like anytime you've got a problem or stuff like that. And of course now they've got models where people are giving them the keys to their cars. Yeah. Amazon are delivering to your boot. Of, uh, and the or, keys to the house as well. And the keys to the house. Because, you know, hey, this is a company I trust yeah. in, in the process. You know, so there is a business model for being fair. Yeah. to this new world of customers that is out there that is looking to be treated fairly. And if you, of course, fair is not enough. You've got to deliver value. You've got to get it there quickly. But if you're actually fair with your current, I think the big revolution is with the current customers. Yeah. The, you know, the emerging customers, the customers they haven't won yet. Forget about the actual customers you have. Yeah. I think if you look at most organizations, most of their strategy is focused on the promise the promise to the potential customer, and they totally neglect their current customer. I mean, what do they do to their current customer? They outsource or they automate. Oh, the less we speak to them, the better. They see the current customer as being captured and as trapped. Yeah. You know, whereas the clever customers, how did Slack grow? Current customers. Yeah. This is really easy to use. Tell your friend. It wasn't the CIO who mm. got slack. It was the 200 engineers who then went to the CEO and said, you better get a license. You need to pay for this, yeah. Yeah, you better, you know, and if you look at Amazon, you look at Google, you look at Facebook, you know, who advertises? It's companies like Yahoo who are out of business now. Yeah. They're the people you see in that, the companies that you can't understand how to bloody use the thing, so they have to advertise the thing. But Google's or Amazon's, they have built Amazon Prime. Their models are built on looking after their customers so their current customers become the champions in the social space. Absolutely. They become the marketers. So I think this shift is focusing on your current customer and delivering them such an amazing experience that they champion you to their friends etc so they become your marketing engine yeah so we could touch a little bit about i suppose i wasn't going to include the marketing aspect but i'm really keen to hear your understanding of what's the role of marketing then in terms of getting the new customers if they're not going to focus on the acquisition of new customers what does marketing do then the, well, the traditional marketing i mean or 
Well, what marketing does is indirect. For years I've said, offline marketing is about getting attention. So you'll still have some, nothing ever is any total one shift to another. Yeah. You know, you move from radio to TV, you still have radio. So you'll still have traditional offline strategies. But offline marketing is essentially about getting attention. But online marketing is about giving attention. Hmm. Right. So marketing should be saying, how do we create an amazing experience for our current customers? Hmm. How do we help and how do we communicate that? Because how do we create an army of marketers? Yeah, I know a lot of UX people would probably argue and say, well, we're, we're responsible for delivering that excellent experience and not marketing. Yeah, well, you know, that's tribal talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so the best solutions anywhere are inherently collaborative and multifunctional and multidisciplinary, right? Marketing has a lot of people and has a lot of budget. And instead of getting in the way, as it is in a lot of cases, if we champion and harness those skills and, and change the thinking. So nobody should be seen about winning the game on their own. So yeah. the more alliances we can create within the organisation, the more everybody wins within the organisation, the more likelihood winning is to occur in the first place. The more it's only UX win or it's only advertise, the more we have the old school thinking in the process. Absolutely. I'm just going to take the conversation back a little bit and we're discussing trust effectively in, in the broader scheme here. But if you had to describe trust, what is trust to you? Well, trust is a kind of the aisle that lubricates the economy. So if you look at very low trust societies, the economy moves in a very target, difficult way and it, mm. and it becomes family-based or whatever because distrust is what you get charged to do business. So if I distrust you, I'll check you up or we'll have to get in a contract or no, I'm not going to pay you now. You know, so in two people who distrust each other, basically it takes much longer to do a transaction typically, yeah, yeah. right? Two people who trust each other, the transaction can be much more seamless, much less steps in the... Pro you're only going to talk with my lawyer, I'll talk with your lawyer, blah, blah, blah. You know, we don't trust each other, so we need a lot of law and we need a lot of regulation. So uh, distrust is the cost of doing business. Uh, so the more distrust, the greater the cost. However, the way you can get around trust in, is through use. Yeah. So if you make something so easy to use that the benefit of the convenience is so great, then often trust is not as important. As, well, it's kind of displaced. If you, if you think about it, you don't trust Uber. I mean, would you trust no. Uber management? But who do you trust? You trust the people who use Uber. So we use Uber, number one, because it's really easy to use and it makes it easier for to get in and out of that taxi. But number two, because people like us have said, yeah, that taxi driver is safe. So we've displaced or not so much rechanneled trust away from I trust the company to I trust the people who actually use the service. Yeah. So again, it's that shift towards the consumer. We've managed to find through technology models of divining customer mm. trust. So yeah. customer trust was like a type of aisle. You know, there was originally aisle was just underneath the ground in Saudi Arabia. Then after 40 years, they find it in Canada in shale and they have techniques to kind of get into that shale-based aisle, which was very difficult to get. Yeah. So the customers like shale aisle. Yeah. It was very hard to get at 40 years ago. But now because of the web and networks, we can actually tap into, we can tap into customer trust yeah. among ourselves that was very difficult to tap into 40 years ago. Yeah. I know we were speaking a little bit more about the, I don't want to call it a Facebook scandal, but definitely I think they're suffering a, a case of, of mistrust or distrust at the moment. But yet their revenue has, has now just proven in the last yeah. month it's actually gone up. Yeah. What does that say about the, the customer's trust well, in relation say, to revenue? What it says is a couple of things. What it says is immaturity. What it says of, who? of the customer. Like Facebook is a customer-obsessed company. The thing is they know their customers so well. They know everything. Customer obsession can become stalking. You know, like obsession is can be good and bad, you know. But what we have from the customer's point of view is basically a kind of make it easy for me, I'm easy. And a kind of a false accounting mm. in most people's mind because 
as many people have said, when it's free, you're the product. Yeah. So people say, what can Facebook make of a customer every month? 20 euro, 30 euro. Facebook knows how much you can make off us, right? Yeah. And what would it cost if they actually charged us for all the services? On a month by month. On a month by month. I know Cheryl Sanderberg is talking about this at the moment. Obviously a lot less, right? Yeah. Because otherwise they wouldn't be making billions. Yeah. So if they can make 30 euros off us, at most it's costing them 10, so they've got a profit of 20. We look and they say to us, hey, we'll give you this thing for free. And we're going, oh, that's amazing. Not realising that we're actually essentially handing them 20 euro a month. Absolutely. Right? So we don't realise the value of our own data, yeah. right? We're suckers. We're the suckers in there. The, there's a guy walks into the pub and he says, I'll buy you two pints for free, but you've got to drive me home. And we go, oh, that's a great deal. We have to drive him 100 <laughs> miles home. We think we've got a great deal because he's, it's cost us 20 euro in petrol and our own time. But we think we got this amazing deal because he bought us two pints. Do you think there's, I know there's a lot of uh, food for thought in this one topic on its own, but a lot can be applied back to how we research and the ethical approach of how we opt in. I think people don't really understand the power of the data. Is no, they don't. Because they don't but understand. We will. They don't we will. understand. When we've driven this guy home six yeah. or seven nights, we begin to think it's not as good a deal as yeah. they thought it was. So I think there needs to be more of these Trumpian moments or, mm. you know, of exploitation of data. So this will hit Facebook, I am sure. Yeah. But there'll be a lag. In it, and maybe they'll be ready for it when they fail. So maybe it'll be four years, five years, six years. But so, sooner or later, people are going to realize hey, this isn't such a good deal as I thought it was. Yeah. Or they'll realize the value, the inherent value, used to be in my labor, but now it's in my data. There's as much or more value in my data as in my sweat. Yeah, no, no absolutely. <laughs> you know, the sweat equity, the data equity. The byproduct, yeah. You know, and people begin to recognise that I've got a lot of data equity or I've got a lot more than I thought I had. Absolutely. So this is a brilliant segue into like what comes after this period of distrust. Well, there's the shift in trust. And of course, then there's the exploitation. That, so the shift in trust has shift to peers. So now we've got the bots who are pretending to be our peers. Mm-hmm. So now they're really exploiting the peer-based trust. And will that destroy peer-based trust, the, you know, the, the, the bot armies? And, it, and then where will trust next go? Mm. Or can we protect peer-based trust? Because trust has shifted. And even if we go to doctors who we claim we trust, 95% of people, but then 60 or 70% will go home and check it up on the internet. So I think there are different types of trust. If you go back when we were children, most Irish people had essentially blind trust. We blindly trusted the church. We blindly trusted teachers, government, doctors. Hmm. And blind trust is the basis of corruption and the basis of abuse of power because anybody who's blindly trusted says you're a chump yeah. you know you're a, I mean I, of course I'll exploit you because you're an idiot because yeah. whatever I say to you you do it you know so even good people become corrupted by blind trust in the process so now we're, we're coming into a more world of I'll trust but verify you know which tell I tell you what that means well it means I'll give you the credit of the doubt but I'll check it out yeah. You know, I'll actually accept what you're saying to me and I'll do it a bit, but I'll go home and I'll check. I'll do a search. I'll do a, you know, I'll verify. Yeah. Is this the right tablet to be on? Because we see all this stuff coming in the medical entities and this scandal about smear tests. I mean, this is just the 1600 medical scandal. And the reason why they, it is as it is, is Irish people accepted what the medical institutions said to them. Medical institutions behave, and surgeons and, and consultants, they behave like gods. Yeah, They behave with a deep, deep, deep arrogance, a kind of, how dare you even remotely question me, who is the consultant? And of course, they make mistakes like everybody else. And then they've got the medical council who protects them. It's 
like a cabal, it's like a little mafia of medical entities in Ireland. And now they're being challenged. Now we're shining the light on them and they don't like it. Well, they're going to have to get used to it. Yeah, because that's the period of, of change. Yeah, that's the... For, yeah. Right, for anyone listening globally, like basically we were discussing here, there was a, there was a case in the court this week where a lady uh, had a smear test um, four or five years ago and um, it was missed that she had, I think it was a tumour of some sort yeah. that was growing and she's basically terminally ill and un- unsavable in some ways um, and she won, I think it was 2.6 million in the court. Uh, but they found hundreds like this. But now they found 150 it, 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 other cases it, 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 like Systematic, this. you know, because, you know, these people in power uh, feel omnipotent. You know, Absolutely. they're untouchable. Well, they're not untouchable anymore and, uh, you know, this wave of people power <laughs> yeah know? absolutely you know people are more educated they're more skeptical they're more cynical they're less willing to accept they're more questioning you know it's messy but it's great yeah so well, what does this mean for i guess the future of, of design service design because i don't think this is representative of an organizational dysfunction is, is it representative of other things well it's representative of a, that a new type of organization that is not parasitical You know, if you have essentially a model that is either patriarchal or exploitative or parasitic, oh, we've got these dumb people. Mm. You know, look at the biggest brands, Pepsi and Coke. What do they do? They give you diabetes and they make you fat. Yeah. Right? You know, or else they sell you shit food, salty snacks or stuff like that. You know, and because they do this amazing branding, we think... They're this extraordinary thing that's doing us good. A huge amount of the the economies are based on exploiting our stupidities and our emotional, oh, if I have a Coke, I'll get a girl. (laughs) You know, like, you know, all the cool people drink Coke. Like, it's it's exploiting our emotional, deep stupidities, right? And it's not that we're all stupid and clever, you know, but we're, we're becoming more clever. We're still stupid, but we're not as easy to fool. Yeah. We, we still can be fooled. So there's models now which says, treat people well, deliver great services, make it easy. You know, government, we're talking about interaction. Why did they create that complexity? Because that's job security. Well, it's job security, but it's also representative of the organisational structure and they've replicated the products. We were speaking about MyGov earlier on yeah. in Ireland. There, there's an attempt to consolidate a lot of the entities into a single entity and without going into too much detail, I'm having some trouble with yeah. we're trying to get things set up over here because I've just relocated from Australia. But is that, whose fault is that? Well, you said the replication, the, the organisational structure, and you're yeah. right. But how did those organisational structures evolve in the first place? You know, they evolved from a point of view of we're now part of government, we're superior, we're in control of you. Self-serving. Yeah, rather than self-service. Yeah, this is quite funny because I was about to quote Jerry McGovern uh, to Jerry McGovern. <laughs> I think you wrote about this in a newsletter, didn't you? Oh, probably. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, but I mean, basically, they are from traditional Ireland where, you know, government was in control of you, the priests were in control of you, the doctors were in control of you. And this now we're in a new Ireland where there's a lot more Jerry's like us who are yeah. calling BS, yeah. you know, and saying, hey, you know, that's not acceptable anymore. You know, you don't need to send me through 17 steps. The reason you send you through 17 steps is, is to actually give them job security and give them sense of power and control. And because they never really think about the person who's using the system. It's all about how do we make it easier internally, etc. And, and how do we keep our job security? Well, Absolutely. That, now government has a crisis of legitimacy because people are looking at government and saying, what good is government government just makes my life miserable it doesn't deliver good services you know i've got amazon i've got google you know if i search in google i get better stuff about government than if i search on a government website so why can't google be the government in the future so what we'll see happening is government being stripped of all the services that it can be stripped of Right, and it'll be left with the roads and the potholes, yeah. and it'll be left with all the expensive, the stuff that nobody else wants or that they can't turn a profit. Absolutely. So if if government doesn't change, because government people say to me, "Well, they got it." deal with us. I say, no, they don't. In most environments, somebody else will take that or else you'll get a Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, you'll, get, you'll get people more and more disillusioned with government delivering value and being up to date. And you'll get these 
populist reactions over time to government. So government can't afford to sit there saying, well, they have to deal with us. Someone else is going to take control of this problem. It's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about what comes after trust as being privatisation and opportunities for other businesses to step in and replicate almost government's responsibilities. Well, they freed the data. The, the data gets freed. So people would say, no, I can present this data in a, in a, in a better way. In, in a better way. I can. So I'll siphon off all the nice stuff and then government will be left with the really expensive yeah. stuff that nobody else wants. Yeah. One of the big things that I've noticed since I've come back home, sorry to harp on about, I've, I've come back from Australia, but there's a lot of differences. But one of the things it's a cultural thing and when I left Ireland people were I guess a little bit more weathered with the recession and they were accepting things they were just like well that's just the way it is now when I've come back people are screaming and when something's not working they're just like go and tell them and it's it's something like like I guess service designers particularly um, were an absolute nightmare to go shopping with and were a nightmare to go because everything has been monitored uh, as I go through those experiences but um it's a cultural thing that I noticed, and it's something really important. If you're not happy, stand up, oh, speak, like, I mean, shout. If you think when we were when we were kids, and if our parents brought us to a restaurant, and and if the food was bad, we'd go, you'd be chewing on on leather meat, and you'd be saying, "Just it must be my teeth," or I don't know, I must go see the dentist, <laughs> or you know, and, and you'd be so totally embarrassed. You Absolutely. wouldn't you wouldn't say a thing, and today you will. You can't get better service if you don't have narky customers. I know what. One of my friends in Australia was telling me, he's lived in Germany, and he goes for a meal in, in Australia, in Sydney, and they're like, how was your food? And everyone around the table goes, it was fine, it was fine. Yeah. But when he goes back to Germany, he was like, how was your, how was your food? And he was like, yeah. well, the steak was about five degrees under. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't cooked to my specification. Yeah. And they're like, okay, cool, well, we'll refund you for that. Yeah. And it just says something more about the culture. Well, it's probably somewhere in the middle we, ne- we need. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We don't want too much of that. Yeah. You know, otherwise, everyone will go bust. Yeah. But uh, I'm just going to, I've got a couple of questions from the Slack community, and it's more talking a little bit more about top tasks. Yeah. I'm going to drop a link into uh, the show notes about top tasks, about how you can learn more about it. But Jussie Passanen, who is the lead UX consultant at ANZ, one of the big banks in Australia, on the Slack channel said, um, I wanted to know what, about other alternatives to top tasks and what you've seen in organizations that might have seen resistance to top tasks and organizations are using their own methodologies. And if you can name any and why they think that there was resistance to the adoption of top tasks. Well, there's resistance because, again, it's a cultural thing. If the, if the organization, the essential difference is that you go to most websites and it's what we want to tell you or promises for potential customers or whatever. Whereas top tasks tend to be more oriented towards current customers because they're the greatest. Yeah. You've far more current customers, unless you're a startup, yeah. than you have potential customers. So top task tends to be more oriented towards current customer base when you when you go out and do it. So you get a lot of resistance from traditional marketing or traditional management figures who feel, no, we'll tell you what to do. The other side of top task is that it says transferring money is a top task. And then it measures and it says, well, 30% of people can't transfer money. And of those who can, it's taking them three minutes and it should only take them 30 seconds. And the idea is to continuously improve the top tasks. So a lot of organisations we deal with, as I'm sure you've found, still have the project culture of, oh no, we've got a transfer money process. We're not going to continuously improve it because they don't measure customers' time. Mm. So the the next element of top tasks is that you measure the top tasks and you come back and you report, well, here's the success rate at 60% and it's taken three minutes. And then the model is, how do we get the success rate up to 100% and how do we get the three minutes down to 30 seconds so most organisations don't want to do that they don't want to measure the actual customer experience as what they're doing. So these are the, the core challenges that we find in a lot of places. Yeah. Have you found um, the application of top tasks? I know it's traditionally, tell me if I'm wrong here, I'm saying traditionally, like it's digital channel focused. Have you seen that applied across an omni-channel yeah, experience? No, uh, that's interesting because what we've done, maybe in the early years, that's mm. what we did. But the way we frame it now, I did a f- my first, big project in Ireland in five years even though I live here I've, I've had no customer here for five years with the Irish Department of Health with HSE and when we did the top tasks for them the way we framed it was in dealing with health 
not your health, because we wanted to get to doctors and yeah. people looking after carers. And so in dealing with health, what really matters to you? So look outward, inward. So not digital, not physical. Yeah. So when we did it with Toyota, we said in buying a car, not even a Toyota car, not online, not offline. Okay. So we've, we've moved away very much because people don't understand offline and online. They don't say, I'm going to buy the car online today. They just yeah. say, I'm going to buy the car. So then they say, oh, I'll check that. Then I'll maybe go to a deal. So customers don't think in channels. You know, they may use channels, but they don't think in channels. Yeah. Right. So we frame it agnostic. Right. Okay. So we try and in choosing a university. So we collect tasks that aren't even digitized yet. So how do you deal with your health? So we try and to find okay. a whole treatment, post-treatment, pre-treatment, ah, okay. anything that could be connected with choosing a university, buying a car, uh, in working for Tetra Pak. Yeah. You know, what's most important to you on a day-to-day basis? In in working for the BBC, in, in, in building an engine for Rolls-Royce. Yeah. So we try and make it agnostic. And then you look at the map that comes back and you say, you know, digital can deal with this, physical, and sometimes it's a mix of things. So top task, ideally, is agnostic of any of channel. channel. Do you have any insights in regards to the um, behavioural differences between channels? You know, what you'll see, I don't know if I pronounce his name, Luke Robuski. Oh, Luke yeah, Robuski, yeah, he's, yeah. he's a great guy. I really admire the work he does. But I was listening to him at an event apart there a couple of months ago and he was saying that typical behaviour in a desktop or a laptop or whatever is about 20, 30 interactions a day, about a minute to two minutes or some longer, whereas on your phone it's about 80, but 10 to 30 seconds. So the type of behavioural interactions tend to be much shorter bursts. You know, need to do this. Quick tasks. Or quick little segments of a top task. So you might be doing a a short, oh, what's the price? Or what's the, you know, or where does it fly from? Or So you might be doing bump, 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 and then finishing it off somewhere else. So you got these much more shorter. But then sometimes, because the channel you might be reading up the details of your diagnosis at home on your smartphone before you go to bed. You know, there's these patterns that they show the later at night, the smaller the device. Yeah. So the device doesn't necessarily mean on the move. (laughs) It could be on the toilet in the bed. Absolutely. But then sometimes you'll see in hospital, because we've done quite a bit of health work over, that you're approaching the hospital. If it knew you were approaching the hospital, right, it could say, oh, parking, how to find the place you need to go to. So there are all sorts of ways and it comes down to, of course, trust as well. Will I allow you to know where I am? Yeah. You know, in the process. Knowing where you are rather than knowing what device you're using yeah. is the crucial aspect of, of... It's a different conversation. Like if you're coming into a big conference, so you might have been checking on this, but they now know it's October 18th when the conference is on, so they now can know you're 30 miles from Dublin. Well, what are they going to tell you? Where are you going to get parking? Yeah. Except Where's the cheapest parking? Where's the cheapest... This yeah. is service design. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's you not know, parking. It's the cheapest parking. Exactly. It's secure parking. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. how, how much of a walk is it to? Blah, blah, blah. It's so, going to rain. Well, we know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you forgot your umbrella. But uh, basically, it's about knowing people. Yeah. And ultimately, people will, like they give trust to Amazon and say, you can use my, you know. So ultimately, trust will become, it'll come back again in an even bigger way because we'll begin to realise the entities that are truly, right now we don't know that we're being exploited and our trust has been exploited. But it's all about having this deep, deep, deep understanding of the customer. Yeah. And using it properly. Yeah. You can get short-term gain by exploiting them. But long term, you can build tremendous businesses, as Amazon has shown, etc., by actually n- not treating people badly, by giving them a good price, by giving them a good service. Yeah. Are you happy to name any companies that you think are doing it badly? Well, I think practically 80%, 80-90%, all the banks, all the insurance companies, all the, their whole business model is to exploit you. The longer you're with you, the worse they treat you. You know, most companies that I deal with, 
you know, you want customer service from them, they outsource it, or, you know, there's very few companies that really are customer obsessed. Yeah, that's true. I've got one more question from um, Mesh Nakani, who both of us actually quite know. Um, great guy, Mesh. He does great work. Great guy, Mesh. I met him at UX Australia last year, and he commented on the channel as well. And he wanted to ask you, what's the one thing an organisation must not get wrong when embarking on a digital transformation? The one thing is that they must not get wrong is the customer. It's the customers you have, not the customers you don't have. And it's basically... They must not get wrong their understanding of the customer. Mm. So they must get right knowing the customer and understanding how they behave and how they think and where they want to click and what button. You know, the true understanding of the actual customer. And I think the more they expose the organisation, the more people within the organisation that get exposed to the customer. So where I see things fail is where, oh... You know, there's a tiny group of people who actually get it or spend time with their customers. So they must spend time with their customers. They must invest in the, the research. time. And research is too small a word almost. In, yeah. in actually, you know, knowing and being around and exposing like Google has developers. I remember the, the guy, Tomer Sharon, and yeah. the great guy, who says they'd feel Fridays where they'd bring the developers out just to meet and watch customers in small businesses, in garages and stuff like that. Absolutely. So the more they invest in truly understanding and developing empathy yeah. for their customers, if they get that right, everything else will fit into place. Wow, okay, that's fantastic advice. We're just going to move the conversation to a little bit more about Jerry McGovern himself. This is what we do towards the end of the the interviews. And I'm keen to understand who inspires you and who do you look for a thought leader in this area? Well, certainly the people that I've looked at, and we were talking about earlier, uh, Jared Spool, you know, Jacob Nielsen. There's a guy, Paul Taylor, in in the UK that I think is good. There's a ton, you know, I'm always reading stuff and and, and in a way it's not fair. And it it kind of, I mentioned those in a way because so many years and they're embedded in my brain. But there's so many people, there's so much interesting stuff. It's a movement of Jerry Gaffney and yourself. And, you know, Mm. there's so many people, there's thousands and thousands it's a kind of we're part there's a shift every country every place there's a whole group of people that are really moving in this direction we're at this pivotal moment which way do we want to go do we want to go the exploited to treat customers like they're stupid uh, exploit the hell out of them get as much data from them as possible do we want to partake in the dark arts or do we want to you know, go for the light and, and actually create fairer, better societies. I think these are no longer decisions of the so-called great men. We can have a say, every one of us. I think every one of us today has a responsibility to actually make the world a better place. Absolutely. And that's a, that was actually a great way to end the conversation. But I'm going to continue for another three questions because... <laughs> We'll move into the very final three questions. And it is again, coming back to a little bit more about Jerry uh, McGovern. Um, what is the one professional skill that you wish you were better at? Accounting. <laughs> that, that's like me as well. Look, at, yeah. Well, what I learned years ago with Noah when I had a consultancy in a group, I'm not a good manager. I mean, there's so many areas that I'm bad at, (laughs) you know, and probably what I'm best at is evangelism and stuff like that. And what what I'm bad at is practically everything else, you know. I don't know about that. No, but often we have things we're good at and so many things that, you know, I'm not a good man. You know, I knew I was not good at managing people and building companies. So I've worked with a very loose network over the places. And I often realise, you know, how blind I am. It's, you know, it's scary when you look at things and you, you go over stuff and then you go over them again a day or two later and think, was that there? Yeah. You know, and you miss it. So I realise all these blind spots I have and I'm scared of them. You know, that you, so often for me to do something well, I have to go over something like 10 or 15 times right, sure, that's right. to really get a sense of everything that's in the environment. If I'm throwing something almost straight immediately, I, I know I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. So I'm a very iterative type of thinker as well. I usually start off making a load of mistakes and then iterate my way through those mistakes. But I suppose the strength I have is I, I keep going. Yeah, resilience, which is a huge trait. Resilience and generally reasonably open. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and hopefully, you know, wanting to keep that way. Yeah. Fantastic. So the second question um, is, what is the one thing in the industry that you wish you'd be able to banish? The tribalism. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is tribes within tribes within tribes. As the world becomes more complicated, we have to go into smaller silos in order to develop the skill set to actually do a decent job at anything, right? Mm. But to actually do the job we need to work with multiple other groups because the job is so complex. So we're finding, isn't it rare you find a multidisciplinary conference? Yeah. You know, or the, you get, if the service conference, the view actually if the IA conferences, and we're all fighting each Segregated. other, you know, splitting hairs and, and over. So, you know, if we could overcome our tribalism, you know, our three million year old tribalism, which is the hardest thing we can overcome and truly look outwards and, and look to work with people who are not like us, you know, and often look to work with people who we initially have an instinctive dislike for, yeah. you know, and say, oh, those people don't, because I do this, that's my, I'm just as much a tribal, my yeah. instinct is, oh, those horrible marketing or those horrible developers, you know, and actually you not just have empathy for the customer, have empathy for people who are not like us yeah. in our discipline and create bridges and do a hell of a lot more bridging of disciplines. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And the last question is, what is the message you'd give to emerging design talent for the future? You're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> this is an amazing time. There's extraordinary possibilities, but evidence yeah. You know, you, you build evidence, learn how to analyze evidence. Don't look to this, go to, well, you haven't developed it yet, but, you know, be very careful about it, I think, because yeah. the gut is three million years old, you yeah. know, in many ways. And I've seen so many instances of where the gut instinct is not right. Get the evidence and, and constantly iterate. Don't think of this idea of the design that's built to last. Think of the idea of the design that's built to change. And that is an absolutely brilliant way to end the conversation. Jerry McGovern, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jerry. Great conversation. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com, where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time.